Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. And the Academy Award. For Best Picture. You're awesome. <laughs> La La Land. nominations this year and is tied for the most nominated movie in Oscar history. I'm sorry. No. There's a mistake. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. So glad I don't work at PricewaterhouseCoopers. <laughs> well, this it's, week. <laughs> it's so funny because I think it warrants, first of all, I used to work at P. Mark Mitchell and we were always so jealous that Pricewaterhouse had the Academy Awards because they had this great press. Now here's how it works, just so you know. So... Martha Ruiz and Brian Cullinan. Now, Brian Cullinan is the partner from Pricewaterhouse, and he manages the Academy account. So he's in charge of it. And then Martha Ruiz is his sort of sidekick. And the two of them get together on Friday when everybody's uh, votes and ballots need to be in, and they count up the results. They, they monitor that themselves. And then they make up you know, every single award, there are 24 awards, and all of them have cards as if anybody won so that whoever's the printer is not going to know, right? Mm-hmm. And then they each put in the card of the winner into their own envelopes. And so when you see them standing there with those big briefcases, both of them have all 24 envelopes in those briefcases. And either one of them stands on either side of stage left and stage right. And when someone goes in, they hand them the card to read aloud. So there's always an extra card because if it's handed to Warren Beatty as this was, then there's an extra card that wasn't given to Faye Dunaway. So that, you know, so either Martha or Brian puts that card away and they move on. Well, clearly, I think it was Brian who made the mistake because he's the one who goes running out onto onto the stage. But at any rate, it's really not complicated. And, (laughs) you know, I think that's why they're hired to do it in the first place. Well, you know, it happened once before. It happened in 64. Sammy Davis Jr. announced that um, John Addison won the best song for Tom Jones when it was actually Andre Previn for Irma LaDuce. But... It was fixed before anybody came up to get the award. This took two minutes and 40 seconds, which, by the way, is outrageous, where people actually accepted the award. It's really inexcusable. You know, much has been said about this, but there's another thing that I wish the auditors or someone could fix. <laughs> oh, this should Did be you good. Realize what is that? There were five categories without a single female nominee. I didn't realize, I know it's been a long time, but none were in the category for Best Direction, and that was the seventh year in a row. None for cinematography, original screenplay, visual effects, or original song. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. It's just... Just when you think, okay, you know, okay. maybe progress is being made. But when Moonlight was announced as the Best Picture winner, that was the least expensive of the Best Picture nominees. $1.5 million. Can you imagine? At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you're going to be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. Do you know who the executive producer of Moonlight was? Brad Pitt. Yep. He has been behind so many movies. 12 Years a Slave, 
which one? Nominated for The Big Short, nominated for Moneyball. He has he a very there. storied career, though, as a producer. Yeah, he does. But I'm, I was surprised he wasn't there, actually. Okay, can I say something really sort of bitchy? <laughs> <laughs> You're looking for my permission. Now I'm dying of curiosity. Okay. Okay, there's something that, like, bad karma, because as you know, not that I hated La La Land and walked out in the middle, which, of course, is exactly what happened, (laughs) but there's something around the karma that Warren Beatty's wife, who should have been up for her work in um, 20th Century Woman. I mean, she... She should have won an Oscar by now, let's face it. Mm -hmm. Okay, Warren Beatty tried to fix it. Now, what's interesting is apparently afterward, right after it happened, you know, Warren Beatty refused to give up the envelopes. He wanted to show the producers and directors of Moonlight what, what had happened, that it wasn't him, you know, making this terrible mistake. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. Faye Dunaway is just sitting there, apparently eating cashews, going, oh, what's the big deal? <laughs> a Bonnie and Clyde moment. Exactly. And I couldn't help but laugh. Uh, but it was a big deal, you know, and it is a big deal. And, um, and I thought that both Moonlight and La La Land's people handled it beautifully and with great, with great dignity, really, but really was wonderful. Well, given how you weren't gaga over Lala, I thought maybe there at the last moment, it's like the opposite of a governor's pardon. I thought maybe you called somebody at PwC. Okay, I do want to say that I'm really glad Lonergan won. He should have won for Best Director for Manchester by the Sea, but he won for Best Screenplay, and I'm glad to see that he won. I thought it was well-deserved. Playwrights generally do well at the Oscars. Moonlight, of course, adapted from a play, and Kenny Lonergan, a Pulitzer Prize-nominated playwright. Absolutely. So anyway, congratulations to everyone, and we're moving right along. I watched Hacksaw Ridge over the weekend. Just to link it to the Oscars, I was so excited that Kevin O'Connell finally won for Best Sound Mixing. He had been nominated 21 times. I mean, that was a record. He did The Patriot, (laughs) A Few Good Men, Top Gun, Terms of Endearment. I'm so glad he finally won his Oscar. Well, I have to say, when they call out his name, they always say, been nominated X number of times. And I heard them say, this is his first win after 21 nominations. And I said, what? You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> anyway, so yes, I'm glad he won too. I hope he's invested in a tux at this point. Okay, but this is such an interesting story because, again, we had a year filled with amazing stories, come, real stories come back to life on, on the screen. And this is another one. What the hell is your delay, Captain? We're waiting, sir. Waiting for what? Private Doss. Who the hell is Private Doss? This is the true story of Desmond Doss, the conscientious objector during World War II, who during the Battle of Okinawa carried people to safety. And I mean, this man is an incredible man, and it was beautifully, beautifully played by Andrew Garfield, you know, who you remember from Spider-Man and the Social Network. Is he still dating Emma Stone? Uh, I don't believe so. They were not together, so I would assume not. He came- That would have been a big power couple, my goodness. Yeah, he came with his sister. But um, uh, but he deserved, okay. he deserved that nomination. He deserved to be sitting there with people who have a lot more experience. And when you look at the fact that Spider-Man, Social Network, and now um, Hacksaw Ridge... 
interesting body of work already for such a young man. On the flip side, it's really rehabilitated Mel Gibson in Hollywood. Well, I don't even want to talk about that, but mm-hmm. um, but, but Mel. Well, interesting. You want to bring up Mel? Let me talk. I'm not going to say much about Mel. And I, by the way, I think it was well directed. I don't think it was brilliantly directed. But so he stated that there were aspects of this that were true, but they were so ridiculous that nobody would have believed they were true. So he didn't put them in. So, for example. Mm-hmm. Doss stepped on this grenade to save all his buddies or something, and he was hit by shrapnel when he was doing it. So he was being carried away by medics when he saw another soldier that was hurt worse than him. So he insisted that they take him off the stretcher and put the more seriously hurt guy on the stretcher. And then he sort of took care of his own wounds and then got hit again while he was waiting for someone to come back and get him. And Mel Gibson didn't put that in because he was sure, and so am I, that everybody would be like, oh, that's so not believable. It couldn't have happened. So, um, And there's this one wonderful moment when his girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, um, hands Desmond, um, she hands him a Bible before he leaves for basic training, and it's bookmarked. At 1 Samuel 17, it's the Old Testament account of David and Goliath. And I thought that was so cool. And I'm sure, I don't know if that was real or played or whatever, but I love the idea because he, in essence, was a David and Goliath. You know, they court-martialed him. They wanted him out. He was the first conscientious objector allowed to go to war without carrying a gun. And he saved more people than people carrying guns. Wow. And... You know, if you think about it, there is a David and Goliath aspect to that that I thought was really, really wonderful. And then, interesting, Hal Wallace, who you may have remembered from the 50s, who was a big producer in the 50s. Do you know him? <laughs> flattering that you think I would remember well, someone you, from you the 50s. Well, you know all those names <laughs> from back before you know. my time. Yeah, well, I know that, but you seem to like all those movies. I do not. So, at any rate, he was this big producer in the 50s, and he tried to buy the story from Desmond Doss, but Doss had no interest in motion pictures and didn't want his story turned into a typical Hollywood movie, which, of course, then he dies. And, of course, that's exactly what they do with his story, which is <laughs> so typical of God Bless America. So um, at any rate, I, I just thought it was, um, it was really something. And there are a couple of quotes that I thought were so applicable to where we are in today's world that I just wanted to end with my two favorite quotes from this wonderful movie that's available all over the place. Now, it's not on Netflix yet, but you can buy it on iTunes. You can buy it on Amazon. And and it's an Amazon movie, by the way. It was their first time where they were nominated for an Academy Award, Amazon. So well done, well done. Okay, so... As we know, most of these movies get their big bump once they've (laughs) been nominated. With the world so set on tearing itself apart... Doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. Private Doss, you are free to run into the hellfire of battle without a single weapon to protect yourself. I thought that was a great quote. And then the second one is um, his, you know, the guy's looking at him when he arrives at basic training and he says to him, I've seen stalks of corn with better physiques. Makes me want to pull an ear off. Private, can you carry your That's weight? A great it's, line. it's a great line. It was really well written. Really well written. You know, did you watch anything? Anything you 
got your nose into? I finally saw the German film Tony Etman. Oh, I knew it. <laughs> I mean, I have been running after this movie now for months, but I finally caught a screening when I was in New York last week. It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, and I know that you just do not, as a matter of principle, go to movies that take more than two hours, and this one had a runtime of two hours and 42 minutes. Okay, she's not telling, she's Which, not doing full disclosure here. I was actually with her in New York. We were doing some other movie stuff. And she said, do you want to go? And I said, no. I believe you asked other people who equally said no. And off you trotted by yourself. With a lot of other people there at at Lincoln Center Plaza. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure you noticed when OJ Made in America won the Oscar for Best Documentary, its runtime was seven hours and 47 minutes, the longest film ever nominated for an Oscar. So, you know, it made Tony Erdmann look like a short. It was okay. <laughs> written and directed by a German woman, Maren Ada, who did the screenplay. And have you seen the trailer, Hollister? No. Hello, Papa. Hello. Wie geht's? Yeah, ja, sehr gut eigentlich. Sie telefoniert nur. Ich bin gleich fertig. Ich habe jetzt jemanden engagiert als Ersatztochter. Naja, das ist ja gut. Dann ruft er dich auch zum Geburtstag an und so. Dann mache ich mir da keinen Stress mehr. It's pretty original, but it, it seems like if you took Robert De Niro from The Intern, but made him more of a prankster, and instead of being Anne Hathaway's intern, he were her father, and you gave him a wig and false teeth, like stunt teeth, and you made it more cinema verite with a Germanic relationship to lighting and nudity... You'd get close to Tony Erdmann. And it definitely contains one of my all-time favorite cinematic hugs. Uh If you go to see the movie, you will know the moment I'm talking about. But the reason I wanted to bring it up is, did you know Hollywood has already bought the rights to do a remake? Uh, No, but I promise you it will be shorter. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's going to star Kristen Wiig as the daughter and Jack Nicholson is going to play the father. Now, this is something I found really interesting. After Meryl Streep, the next most nominated actors, it's a tie, are Katherine Hepburn and Jack Nicholson at about 12 nominations each, Mm. something like that. But this will be his first leading role in 10 years. Wow. You know, and I'm a little skeptical because every time they announce they're going to do a remake of a German movie, I cringe a little bit because I had a foreign language professor once say that style is that which goes missing in the translation. And I think about a great German comedy, if no one's seen it, it's called Mostly Martha. They remade it as No Reservations with Catherine Zeta-Jones and Aaron Eckhart, and I think it just lost a lot of its flavor. I saw No Reservations. I didn't think it was great at all. Yeah, Yeah. and yet the original is very original. The Lives of Others, I know they were going to do a remake, and that's still in production or maybe even in development. So we'll see, but I am curious. If someone can play this prankster, it might just be Jack Nicholson. I'm Tony. Tony. Erdmann, nice to meet you. I'm consultant and coach. Sorry, Bob, then my father made a stupid joke. But one note to anybody who's seen the film where these stunt teeth really do add to this father's alter ego. 
it actually happened to the writer-director in real life. She was at a premiere of the very first Austin Powers movie. <laughs> and as part of the giveaways to whoever was there, they gave them this set of teeth. She gave the teeth to her father, and every now and then he would wear them out in public. He once wore them to his dentist, and it inspired her as she was creating these characters of a father-daughter hey, relationship. Hey, you know, I, I can't see my father ever doing something like that, but whatever. Very good. But it really made his character original. Mm. So I'd love to hear from our listeners, whoever seen Tony Atman, give us a shout okay. over ScreenThoughts.net and let us know what you thought about it. Um, all right. And then for our main feature this week, we're going to be doing a feud, Betty and Joan TV series that's launching next week on FX. And so mm-hmm. it's the story of the making of whatever happened to baby Jane that was, that was done with the two of them. But so we thought that our list of six this week would be fun to do three movies. Each of us are going to pick three movies done by either Susan Sarandon or Jessica Lange, who are playing uh, Betty and Joan, and mm-hmm. uh, pick our favorite of those of those two actors. So you started off. Who you got? Okay, I got to start with Thelma and Louise. I knew you were going. <laughs> and I know you do. And I took that as a very good omen that in our very first year of podcasting, both Thelma and Louise crossed our paths. They did at the Bentonville yes. Film Festival. Yep. Yep. And then Susan Sarandon, of course, in New York. Um, so I'm I'm going to go with that one. I would gladly drive off the cliff with both of them. <laughs> you know, and I did not like that movie. That's so funny. I really didn't like really? that movie. Well, we've had this conversation uh, actually on our podcast before. I found them characters that um, insulted my feminist nature. Interesting. Yeah, didn't like it. Okay. Okay, I'm going to start with um, with Jessica Lang playing Frances Farmer in Frances. And, uh, we, you know, she was nominated for Best Actress, but Sophie's Choice won that year with The Great Merrill. Um, I think that's one of her finest moments on film. And again, why am I always drawn to these real-life uh, situations that come to the screen? But an incredible story for I mean Frances Farmer was you know put away in a mental institute because she didn't behave the way they told her to and uh, and Jessica Lange played it brilliantly so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with that okay my next one's also gonna be a Jessica Lange role huh. I'm gonna go with the 2009 made for TV movie Grey Gardens oh, wow. the original Grey Gardens of course was the famous documentary that came out in 1975 about this mother and her daughter who were living in this decaying mansion in East Hampton. Relatives, by the way, of Jackie O. O. Yes, her aunt and her cousin. And I guess when the documentary came out, you know, people were just saying, why isn't Jackie O helping them out? And she had to, did she get them to a new house or she helped? She tried to help. I don't think they 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 really wanted to be helped. But anyway. But they did a made for TV movie with Jessica Lange and Drew Barrymore playing her daughter. And I thought Jessica Lange as Big Edie was mesmerizing. She was very good. And actually, Drew Barrymore was very good too. And that was one of those roles. Mm -hmm. When Drew finds a role that's out there and she wants it, she is dogging in her pursuit of it. And that was a role that they didn't want to give her. And she kept pushing, pushing. Pushing, pushing, and she finally got it, and it was very well cast, very beautifully done. By the way, you'll you'll mm-hmm. be happy to know that house had it, for many years it sat in disrepair, and it was sold about five years ago, and it's been redone, and I've seen it. It's beautiful. So just as an FYI, do you know who lives in it now? No, and if I did, I wouldn't tell you. Why aren't we podcasting from there? Hollister? I don't know, but we're not. So there you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, my second one. It's so funny. You're going to do. Are you going to do one of Susan Sarandon, or are you doing three Jessicas? Well, 
I did Thelma and Louise. Oh, right, of course. So I, it's so funny because I'm doing two Susan Sarandons and one Jessica. So they each got equal billing. Isn't that nice? I just want to say. Well, see, I haven't done my third one yet. Oh. But you're absolutely correct. I'm doing exactly. two Jessicas and one Susan. Okay, I'm going to go lightweight here. Don't judge me. No judgment. Hashtag no judgment Hollister. Okay, I'm going to Stepmom, <laughs> where Susan Sarandon plays Jackie Harrison, who is the woman who's been left for the younger woman, Julia Roberts, who is much more fun to have as a stepmom. And then <laughs> um, she dies a sad death, actually, Susan Sarandon. She, she gets sick and... Uh, leaves them all behind, but she, it's a great poignant story. And she had to hold back. I mean, Julia Roberts has, has the stronger, you know, more vibrant role. And I loved the way Susan took the back seat and her timing was slower and she sat back more than you usually see her in her roles. And I thought she just played it brilliantly. So I'm going to give her that one. You know, every time I walk through Central Park where they filmed that one scene, yeah. I still think about Stepmom. I know, right? But I'm sure you've heard this, but I thought this was really interesting, the way Susan Sarandon got into acting. She was married very young to Chris Sarandon, yep. and he went to audition in a movie about the 1968 Democratic Convention. He didn't get the part. But the director saw her in the waiting room and just said, hey, you, and cast her in the movie, which I'm thinking maybe might not have been the best thing for their relationship. Well, they broke up soon after, just so you know. Yeah, there you exactly. go. <laughs> okay, so what's your third one? My last one, I'm going to go with another Jessica Lange, her Oscar-winning role in Tootsie. Oh, yeah, okay. By the way, I thought she should, when she won that, I just didn't think it was a stretch. I didn't think it was a hard role to play. And, uh, you know, I just didn't get it. I mean, I thought he should win, but, I mean, I thought he played it. But see, it, just, like, it wasn't uh, a supporting, it was a supporting Oscar, no. but I think sometimes roles in comedies are just overlooked by the Academy. Yeah. So wait, so... I think they put their thumb well, on the Well, there's a reason, perhaps, that, you know, this, the, di- I, I go with degree of difficulty. Again, I'm pretending I'm at the Olympics, and the degree of difficulty of her role in Tootsie just did not seem to be at that level to me. And yet, so. I think when you're doing comedy, you have to make it look easy. Uh, I just didn't think it was a challenging role. But, okay, um, my last one is Susan Sarandon in Dead Men Walking, where she plays again, another another real-life story, where she plays Sister Helen um, Prejean. Do you remember that? I do. Susan Sarandon won the Oscar for that role, and Sean Penn was nominated. Yeah. I thought she was very, very good in that, too. And if we look at her body of work, by the way, it's really quite vast. I mean, she's done a lot of different roles. There was much to choose from when we were putting our list of six together. And she's done about three times as many roles as Jessica Lange. I know, right? Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So -hmm. this moves us into... into this amazing story that it's not, you can't see it yet, but it's, when's it launching? What's it going on to FX? Is it March 5th at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time? I was blown away by this, this first episode. There was never a rivalry like theirs. For over half a century, they hated each other and we loved them for it. When I heard Ryan Murphy was behind it, who has brought us Glee and American Horror Story and Nip Tuck and Hollister, guess who is the executive producer of Feud? Oh, I guess you're going to say Brad Pitt. Yes, I am. (laughs) From Thelma and Louise. Well, now, I've always believed it done properly. Armed robbery doesn't have to be a totally unpleasant experience. 
You see, that they're all is everywhere. to each other. Exactly. Uh-huh. Well, and he, you know, Feud, that's his middle name right now. So I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, now what was the last film we, we reviewed, Woody Allen's last film? Well, not made for TV. It would be Cafe Society. Right. Okay, do you remember how I was very, dis- I just didn't feel like he portrayed the time well, the time in history in which it was set I just felt like he, mm-hmm. he just didn't, oh, well, this, you know you're in that time frame of late 50s, early 61, 62. It's just beautifully laid out, but you don't notice that you've been taken back in time. You just feel like you're there, which was exactly what was wrong with Woody Allen. It was like, okay, here's a set, and the set is set for the 50s, and you sort of knew you were on a set. You know, this way, you really do feel like you were in a time machine taken back. And I think the portrayal that they did of the two actors is just spot on. Just spot on. Sarandon and, and Lang are perfect in those roles. Perfect. Betty, I promise you this is going to be the greatest horror movie ever made. Why this picture? We feel like Crawford and Davis may be a little long in the tooth. Why don't we go just a little bit younger? You want me to work with her again? Are you crazy? Never! Never again! Susan Sarandon with those Betty Davis eyes, when she puts on that white makeup, I had to go back and look at a poster of whatever happened to Baby Jane. I thought she really was the spitting image of Betty Davis. But this is something I mentioned in our podcast about Mad Men. Going back to that era, I find it a little depressing because you realized what they were battling then are themes of today, (laughs) where you hear these two great Hollywood legends complain about they just can't find any good parts for women, you know, especially women of their age. And that aspect of it, I, I do find well, depressing. but they also had a lot more power in some ways back then that the, than the actors do now because there were fewer of them. Well, it seems like they had a lot of power up until okay. the thirties, yeah. and then it was on, you know, yeah. the wane. Here's what Susan Sarandon herself had to say about that. Every actress, basically at this point, says that the roles are hard to find now. When she was, a lot of this takes place. Uh, yeah. She was about ten years younger than uh, than I am. But um, so has anything changed? Wow. Would you say, Susan? When you have a 60-year-old, uh, 65-year-old male actor and he has a wife, she's usually 35. So there aren't too many. Yeah. That hasn't changed. Um, and I think there's a lack of imagination in terms of telling stories for about older people. Um, but there's definitely more actresses that have production companies. And, yeah, and that has that. changed. Yeah. Well, well, maybe right. this incredible project yeah. will, will create some more opportunity. It is. Exactly. But what's also interesting about this is so Jessica Lange... And Susan Sarandon play Betty and Joan Crawford, right? Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And Catherine Zeta-Jones is portraying um, Olivia de Havilland. And what's really yes. fun about this is all three of them are playing three Oscar winners, and they've all won Oscars mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. That's right. And Catherine Zeta-Jones, they gave her a great line when she said, feuds are never about hate. Feuds are about pain. That just stopped me in my tracks. I had to think about it. Well, you know, I, I've often, I often tell people who get very angry, you know, um, I say, you know, anger and, and hurt is the same emotion. And sometimes, and, but hurt's harder to handle. You know, you hurt my feelings is much harder than how could you have done that? You'd totally creep, you know? And, mm-hmm. and it's the same thing, you know, uh, you know, hurt, you know, hurt around a feud versus anger around you did me wrong. There's big, big difference around it. But, um, but the fact that these two women who were arch enemies came together because both of them needed the other to be able to do this amazing role, which by the way, was up for six or seven Academy Awards when it finally came mm-hmm. to the screen. And it's really creepy. I went back and watched it. Did you? 
I tried to, but it wasn't on Netflix. But as I was searching for it, I thought a lot about what we said in last week's podcast, really what you said about Reese Witherspoon being a rainmaker in Hollywood, where she's grabbing up the good literary properties and turning them into movies. Because watching the pilot, when they have Joan Crawford go out to find something that was worthy of her and her mamacita. They didn't have her do that. She decided to do that because she couldn't get a role. I mean, when, when Ryan Murphy portrays Joan Crawford. Oh going out and finding the book. And she sends out her assistant, Mama Sita, played by Jackie Hoffman, who was the in way. the Gilmore yep. Girls revival. Right. I think she's great. Um, you know, there's this book, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane by Henry Farrell, and she has it adapted. And I thought, wow, that's just like today with Big Little Lies, you know, finding the properties that pre-exist right. in the book world. There's a scene in there. And again, we never, we try not to tell you the plot because frankly, you can read that anywhere. But there is a scene where they're doing their they're signing the contract for the for the film and they're both trying to get into the right power position, the two of them, Betty Davis and, and Joan Crawford, and they're going back and forth and this one wants to make sure that one got, you know, and the same amount as this one. I mean, it's just the juxtaposition of who's really bigger in that moment is just beautifully, beautifully laid out, I thought. I'm looking forward to future episodes yeah, where too. I can really see them go at because this first pilot had to set it up where they're not quite yet in the boxing ring. But boy, is it packed with just A-list actors. The great Judy Davis plays the gossip columnist who we last saw in The Dressmaker. Yeah, Hedda Hopper, yeah. You know, Alfred Molina as the director, Stanley Tucci Who's wonderful, as and I didn't even recognize him for the first minute he's on the screen. Oh, really? The Oscar-winning Kathy Bates, Mark Valley from Boston Legal, and Sarah Paulson will be in future episodes. Yeah. Can you comment on the fact that Miss Crawford says you look old enough to be her mother? You gotta keep them at each other's throats. You have to. Lose the shoulder pads. I beg your pardon. Cut back on the lipstick. You're playing a recluse who hasn't seen the sun for 20 years, for Christ's sake. I might have something, but you didn't hear it from me. Blind item, my specialty. This is something that I found so hopeful. Sarah Paulson, of course, has worked with Ryan Murphy on American Horror Story. And they were at an event together talking about the show. And Sarah Paulson mentioned that she had never worked with a female director on the set of American Horror Story. And Ryan Murphy just stopped and he's like, what? And she goes, yeah. And this is television where you have a different director every episode. He was horrified. So he went out and started a foundation called Half. He committed to it that at least half of all his episodes be directed by women, people of color, someone from the LGBT community. And when you go to IMDb and look at the episodes of American Horror Story, Angela Bassett, has recently directed an episode he's really committed to. I would say there's more female directors of late than male directors. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and again, that's that sort of lean in, leg up. And I'm, I'm not, I'm somebody who wishes that you just didn't think at all about gender or race. You just hired the best person for the job, you know? But um, it would be nice. I know, but, I know, you know, I know, I know. Ryan you're Murphy right. Said, you're right. You're right. You're right. I personally can do better. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. but here's what's also fun is Kathy Bates. She was in Misery, and I loved seeing her on the screen around this because if you think about the what happens in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, it's very Misery-like. Do you know what I mean? I thought, ooh, she belongs here. Another movie based on a book. I know. Yay. Um, anyway, everybody needs to start watching this, especially if you love film. And if you love the history of film 
and you love where film's going and where it's been and where it came from, you cannot miss the series. It just can't happen. FX has already committed to a season two of Feud. Uh-huh. And guess what the focus is going to be in season two? What? The feud between Prince Charles and Lady Di. Uh, there you go. Well, that may look ridiculous. Of course not. Pure, naked rancor. I love it. I want more. Hollister, when I was thinking about the plot behind Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, the book and then the movie and now Ryan Murphy's TV take on the making of, this is one of the little summaries. Two sisters live in a decaying mansion, isolated from the outside world. One is helpless, the other's abusive, and they are both slowly descending into madness. Doesn't that kind of sound like Grey Gardens? I thought you were going to say, doesn't that sound like us? (laughs) Oh my God! I'm like, thank God. I'm like, oh, my God. What, who is she? Oh, where is she going with this? Okay, yes. It does sound like Great Gardens. Thank God you're not talking about us. And action. Oh, God, I barely touched her. Hey, Hollister, I wanted to end with a few more statistics. Okay. Okay, Meryl Streep made headlines last year when she was out promoting Suffragette, and she decried a lack of female critics in the industry. And do you remember she was talking about her informal survey where there was something like seven times more male reviewers than female reviewers? Yes. And don't you remember you and I lamented that we're female reviewers and we're not getting our due? Yes, I remember. (laughs) Okay. And then there's also something that some have dubbed the 715 rule of podcasting. Uh And they said most podcasts die in that realm, somewhere between the 7th and the 15th episode, where iTunes is a veritable graveyard of dead podcasts. Hmm. Okay, how many have we done? This will be our 132nd Uh, episode. We we are no longer a graveyard. We've like moved into the next dimension. (laughs) I'm going to say, you know, we might be outliers. And I just want to say to our listeners out there, if you have a moment for your outliers, please rate us on iTunes, share us with a friend, but most importantly, send us your screen thoughts via our website, screenthoughts.net, and we just appreciate each and every listen. We do. We really do. But also on SoundCloud, too. We're on SoundCloud. We have a lot of viewers on or listeners on SoundCloud. And if you can go there and like the page, too, that will help as well. So thank you for supporting us. Thank you. Thank you. And Hollister, you know what? What? I, I think we have no feud. We're no Betty. We're no oh, Joan. Oh, we can feud. I like feuding with you. You're always so respectful in your feud. I have to like, I have to be better than normal because I'm not usually as nice as you are when I'm feuding. Which one of us gets the Betty Davis eyes? You can have the Betty Davis eyes. Can I do it to the beat of Madonna's song? Yeah, because I don't like her eyes. I think they're quite creepy. 